0: Okay, very good. Let's turn our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 7. And tonight we're going to be picking it up at verse 24, which says, And from there He arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and He entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but He could not be hidden. Jesus has been ministering up in the area of the Galilee because the heat was on in Jerusalem. And although no man could take his life from him before the appointed time, Jesus was not about to recklessly go into a situation that was ready to explode. He wasn't going to uh, put God to a foolish test in a sense. He was gonna withdraw because he knew that the uh, leadership in Jerusalem was really looking to find something to to accuse him with and, and to kill him. So he retreats up into the area of the Galilee And he's been ministering up there now for quite a bit, but as we saw last week, the officials from Jerusalem sent a delegation of Pharisees and and scribes up to the area of the Galilee, and now it's starting to heat up up there. And remember now, we're approaching the final third of Jesus' life, and he is withdrawing more and more from the multitudes. I mean, the Pharisees and scribes are out to get him the people are thronging him wherever he goes and so it's becoming it's getting to be a real uh, taxing physically for him to continue to minister uh, at the pace he's been ministering at and besides that he knows that the cross is coming nearer and nearer and he knows that soon he's going to be passing the mantle to his disciples to carry on the work that he had begun as he was about to be taken from them and he knew that he needed to begin to spend more time alone with them not only to rest himself for what lied ahead, but to build into these men more and more because they would be taking over for him very shortly. And so he withdraws even from the area of Galilee. And this is the only recorded place in the Gospels where Jesus went outside of Palestine into Phoenicia, but today it's modern-day Lebanon. At one time, though, this was all part of Israel uh, under Joshua Uh, God gave to Israel this land, but the territory, the tribes up that way never did fully conquer it. So the enemy stayed in that territory, and it wound up becoming uh, Phoenicia. And Jesus withdrew himself to there. Of course, the only other time he was outside the Holy Land was uh, when he was a a newborn baby, and Joseph and his mother took him down to Egypt because Herod was trying to, to kill him. But this is the only other time where we see Jesus setting foot outside Palestine. And uh, he probably spent a little time up this way. He was probably just getting alone with his men, just for rest, relaxation. You know, it says here that he went into a certain house and he wanted to do it quietly so nobody knew he was in town. Because again, I really believe he was really trying now to withdraw himself from the crowds. He was really trying to spend some quality time with his men, but... As they say, Jesus' name preceded him. And a woman, verse 25, whose young daughter had an unclean spirit, heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For this saying, Go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on her bed. Now, let's turn over to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15, because Matthew records this and gives us a little more detail. One thing that is obvious to us is that this woman was a Gentile jesus christ is in gentile country all right the area up in phoenicia was gentile country and uh, this woman was a syrophoenician by birth she was a gentile i believe the king james says she was a canaanite a descendant of those people that god had commanded joshua to drive out from this area but she her descendants had stayed and she now lives in this area her daughter is demon possessed no doubt having grown up in this culture, the Syrophoenician culture, she was uh, had um, possibly, probably had gone to the various gods that were, you know, over this area, the gods that these people worshipped, and she had tried no doubt to, uh, to get one of these pagan deities to cast this demon out of her daughter. Uh, it doesn't say so directly, but there's a good possibility that all the demon worship that she was involved in uh, because we know that Paul says that anything that the Gentiles sacrificed to idols, they really sacrificed to demons. All these pagan gods were really nothing more than demons that Satan had, uh, positioned in key areas and so on. It could very well be that her demonic worship had actually led her daughter to become possessed. So the very gods she had turned to for help were possibly the ones that in the beginning had, had, uh, indwelt her daughter, had, uh, Had demon possessed her daughter Uh, anyways though all avenues seem to have been exhausted and she's desperate and she hears about Jesus and she hears all the things regarding Jesus well let's let's read it out of Matthew's Gospel verse 21 then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon which is on the, the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea and behold a woman of Canaan see here it is where we're told she's a Canaanite A woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon possessed. Now she called him son of David. That was a messianic title. That was a title that was reserved basically for the Jews. A thousand years earlier, God had prophesied that someday Messiah was going to be born of the seed of David, that the Messiah was going to be of the house and lineage of David. And so the term Son of David came to be used for as a messianic title. And we see it used throughout the Gospels uh, with regard to Christ. Almost always though used by the Jews of Jesus Christ when they wanted something from him. Remember the Pharisees, chief priests, and scribes, the Jewish leadership had rejected him, but many of the people, the commoners, the just ordinary Jews, had believed in him as Messiah. And so they would use the term Son of David, and it was a messianic title. And somehow, possibly from different Jews that were living in her area, even though it was predominantly Gentile, they had heard them use this phrase with regard to Christ. Uh, oftentimes when Jesus walked through an area, people would line the streets, remember? And they would cry out when they wanted a healing or something, Jesus, thou son of David. Remember the blind men were yelling uh, from the sides of the street uh, that, you know, that he would heal them and have mercy on us. So Jesus, son of David, and he said to them, what do you want? And that we want to see, Lord. You know, he opened their eyes and all. Uh, quite often when the Jews wanted something from him, they would cry out this phrase. Well, she picked up on it. And not only did she pick up on it, but I believe that she had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, see, and that he was the Lord. I don't think she was just picking up a phrase and kind of imitating what the Jews, what she heard other Jews saying. I really believe as we're going to see, she did have faith. And this is a kind of a section of scripture that people read. And if you don't know the character of Jesus Christ, you can get very offended by this section. A lot of people have read this, and gotten very turned off, very offended. Now if you know Jesus Christ, you know that what he was about to say, if you take it the way it sounds like he's saying it, is totally out of character for him. Obviously something else is going on that we're not maybe aware of up front. Let's read it out of Matthew's Gospel. So she says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed, but he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and urged him saying send her away for she cries after us now here's the picture and how many of us knowing the character of christ would believe that he would turn his back on a mother who had a demon-possessed daughter that she loved with all her heart, was desperate to see delivered. And yet she comes after the Lord and cries out, have mercy on me, uh, son of David. How many of us could believe Jesus would just turn the deaf ear and turn his back on this woman and walk away from her? Something is going on. Mark tells us she continued to plead with him. She wasn't going to give up. He was quiet. He didn't say a word. Now the disciples were getting embarrassed because she kept walking after them, crying out, have mercy on me, son of David. And after a while, the disciples were like, Lord, and it's not stated here, but probably the implication is, Lord, will you just heal her daughter so that we can get rid of this woman? Because Jesus' response to what they said when they came to him and said, send her away for she cries after us. These guys weren't very compassionate towards her. Maybe they were upset because they were tired of all the public ministry that had been going on and they wanted some rest. They wanted to have Jesus all to themselves. And it was kind of intruding on their personal time with him. So it seems like they didn't have much compassion for her and maybe wanted Jesus to heal or just simply to get rid of her. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now that is true. Remember how that when Jesus sent the disciples out two by two, what did he tell them? He said, go nowhere but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. See, His mission, his ministry was focused primarily on Israel. They were the ones that the messianic promises were given to. And yet what did God tell Abraham many, many, many centuries earlier? when he promised him that someday his descendants would be as the stars of heaven and the grains of sand on the seashore. And what did he say? And in you, what? Israel would be blessed? All the nations of the earth would be blessed. His ministry was not exclusively to Israel, as we're going to see. But they were the ones that were targeted first. They were the ones that were the offer was extended to first for the kingdom. Uh, that was the priority because it was through the Jewish nation that Messiah was born. It was their right to have first choice, first crack, you might say, at accepting him and seeing the kingdom established. Remember last week, though, we saw how that he had kind of cleansed all foods He had kind of removed the dietary laws. Remember how the Pharisees were all upset because the disciples ate with unwashed hands? And it really wasn't unwashed hands in a a, uh, hygienic sense. It was that they were not washing their hands in the ceremonial way. And therefore, the Pharisees believed they were eating with defiled hands. And Jesus said, look, it's not what enters into a man's mouth that defiles him, but what comes out of his mouth, because that's what comes out of his heart. And out of the heart proceeds murders, blasphemies, evil thoughts, envies, and so on. And, and and then he went on to say, but food doesn't defile a man. And so in a sense, he was cleansing. He was removing the dietary laws. And it could be here, after he taught them about no foods defile, and there's no such thing as unclean foods, now he was going to, in this way, teach them there was no such thing as unclean people, in the sense that he was here for all mankind, see, not exclusively to Israel. But it sounds that way, doesn't it? He says, look, I was not... Sent, except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And I kind of picture in my mind's eye him looking over to the disciples and saying that while he's still walking away from this woman, he's kind of got his back to her, I would imagine, as he's kind of walking away, and yet she's not giving up. She's following after them, crying out, Have mercy on me, son of David. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the little dogs. Now the King James translates to throw it to the dogs. And that's where a lot of people get really offended. First of all, they see Jesus turning a deaf ear. It sounds like It looks like he's coming across very prejudiced against the Gentiles. Here's a woman who was in need. She's crying out for mercy. Her daughter, she's a mother. Her daughter is severely demon-possessed. She comes to Jesus, and what does he do? turns his back on her, starts to walk away from her. She keeps on following after him and following after him, and he still won't respond to her. And the disciples finally come and say, Lord, you know, do, do something about this. Give her what she wants. Get rid of her. We can't deal with this. And he said, but I wasn't sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then she comes in an act of desperation. It says here she worshipped him. But the Greek word is proskuneo, and it's a word that simply means to fall down prostrate on the ground, with your face on the ground. Now, it's a word that was often used of worship, but it wasn't a, a holy word, a sanctified word. It wasn't used only of God. It was used in regard to any king or sovereign or ruler. Many times people would come down in an act of reverence and respect, would fall prostrate in front of a king, an earthly king. Uh, So the word doesn't carry in it the sense of worship that we might think when we think of worship towards God. I'm not so sure she worshipped him as much as she fell down prostrate before him, broken and desperate and crying out for mercy. Now, in a sense... That was an act of worship because worship isn't just singing praises to God, we, we know. It's acknowledging our dependence upon Him. It's acknowledging His supremacy, His His awe, his, uh, his power, and so on. And that was what she was doing in a sense. She was helpless and she knew she needed Him in, in this regard. She needed His power. But he responds to her and says it's not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the little dogs. And this is, as i said, many people read it and get very offended by that. Especially because the King James translates it to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. The New King James has kind of softened it and given it more of the true intent. But again, to read it the way the King James translates it, if you don't know the character of Jesus, you could become very offended by that. You could say, well, gee, this is something. Because, you know, the term dogs, the Greeks had two terms for uh, dogs. One term was for the dogs that roamed Palestine, these, uh, these mongrels, these vicious, uh, mangy, wild dogs that would roam Palestine in packs. Uh, they would, they would uh, live off of garbage and dead carcasses. They would even attack sheep at times and even small children. They were a nuisance. They were hated by everybody. Uh, and they people assume Jesus is using this term to call her by, especially because the Pharisees used this very term to call the Gentiles by. The Pharisees called Gentiles dogs. And it was not anything but a put-down, a derogatory expression, because the Pharisees looked down on the Gentiles. They despised them. And so they had a kind of a slang uh, derogatory term for the Gentiles. It was the word dogs, but not this word. This is a different word. And this is not the wild mongrels that used to roam Palestine. This word denoted the uh, the little house dogs, domestic animals that would, people would have for pets, you see. Obviously, even, even in that context, Jesus is not complimenting her, but he's not putting her down the way some people think he is. He's using an illustration. He's saying, look, I have been sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They're the children of the kingdom. And it's not right to take the bread of life, which is meant for the children of the kingdom, and to throw it to those that the covenant has not been given to. See, she was outside the covenant of Israel. And so he uses that expression. He, he says it's not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the little dogs. Now, understand what he's doing. Why do you think he was up there? I mean, sure, to get some rest and relaxation, to spend some time with his men, but everything Jesus did had a purpose to it. Remember how he said at one time in John chapter 4 to his disciples, I must go through Samaria. And the rabbis never went through Samaria because they believed that Samaria was defiled. Even the dust of Samaria, you didn't want to get on your sandals. So when they had to go up to Galilee, they would actually go around Samaria, which was quite a ways out of the way to go up around Samaria because they would not enter into that area because they believed that the Samaritans were defiled. Well, when Jesus said, I must go through Samaria, it it really shocked his disciples, first of all. But then he sat down by a well near Sychar, and uh, which was near it was a city in Samaria his disciples went into town to get some food because he had not eaten in a long time but the whole purpose of him going to, of his going to Samaria was because he knew that before the foundation of the world he had an appointment penciled into his daytimer to meet a woman by a well because she needed she was going to be ready at this particular moment in history she was divinely prepared by God to be open now to receiving Jesus as Messiah and Lord. And I personally believe he went up into the area of Tyre and Sidon for other reasons. But one reason I know he was up there was to touch this woman for himself. I mean, that's why he was up He knew he, what he was going to do. So why was he playing games with her then? He wasn't playing games with her. He was purposely trying to draw out her faith. I mean, yes, he was. it sounded like he was refusing her. But all the while, he was trying to bring her faith to full flower, to bloom. See, he knew it was there. I really believe that this woman was saved. But she had such little information about him, and yet what little she had, she acted on and received him in her heart as the Messiah of Israel and Lord that alone could deliver her daughter. And he's trying to draw this faith out of her. And he said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, true, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Now, can't you see a smile break across the face of Jesus just then? That's what he wanted, see? And he responded by saying to her, "O oh, woman. And the word he used for woman is gune in the Greek. It's an endearing term of respect. He wasn't putting her down at no time in this whole thing. This was the same Greek word he used to refer to his mother by. It was a term of respect. And he said, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. See, he accomplished what he wanted to do. He pulled that faith out of her. See, she wasn't willing to give up. And he was, that's what he wanted. He didn't want her to give up. He wanted her to ask and to keep on asking, to seek and to keep on seeking, to knock and to keep on knocking because he intended to give to her all along. But don't forget, Jesus had come encounter with a lot of people that cried out to him, Oh, son of David, help me. And after they got what they wanted, they would leave him and that would be it. See, I mean, he knew there were a lot of people that were just looking to get something from him. They weren't really willing to follow him or to give him control of their lives. But here this Gentile woman, outside the covenant of God's chosen people, And yet not excluded, but someone that the Lord wanted to pull from her, this faith. And um, it was the practice back then when you would eat, you didn't use any kind of utensils. You used the utensils God gave you, your hands. And oftentimes they would bake loaves of bread and then they would have on the table various bowls of different kinds of soups and sauces that they would then break off chunks of bread and dip it in the various, you know, sauces and soups, and they would eat that way, and, and you know, and during the course of the meal, your hands got kind of greasy and all of that, you know, and you'd, you know, if there was any meat, you'd rip chunks of that off and eat, and, and so by the end of the meal, your hands were greasy, so the last piece of bread you ripped off, you would take it, and you would use it to wipe the grease of the juices off your, off your hands, your fingers, and then what you would do is you'd toss it under the table to the little puppies, see? And she was kind of picking up on this, in a sense, you know. And saying to her, saying to Jesus, well, you know, Lord, right, I know that I don't belong at the table with the, with the children of Israel. It's their place to be at the table. But don't even the little dogs get some of the scraps that fall from the table? It was true. His own people, for the most part, had rejected him. They had rejected the bread of life. And here was this Gentile woman who was more than willing and wanting to receive it. And 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 we're seeing now that the way was being opened more and more for the Gentiles, which was always in God's plan. As we just said earlier, God said to Abraham, "In you, that is in your seed." And Paul says in Galatians, he used the singular. He didn't say, "And to your seeds as many." In other words, Paul's point was he didn't say to Abraham, "And through your seeds, your descendants, or Israel, all the world will be blessed." But through your seed, singular which was Messiah or Christ. Messiah was going to come through the seed of David, but he was coming to bring salvation to the whole world, not just Israel, see? And we know that because Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 1 said that uh, the gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Jesus came first to his own. His own did not receive him. But to as many as received him, John said, to those he gave the right or the power to become the sons of God, even to those that believe in his name. It was never limited only to Israel. For a time, yes, Jesus came to Israel first with the message of the gospel. But as they began to turn their backs more and more on him, more and more Gentiles began to hear of him, and more and more began to come and be saved. And we know the great commission Jesus gave his disciples when he, before he ascended into heaven, he said, go into uh, all the world and make disciples of all nations, say, not just Israel. And of course, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you'll receive power to be witnesses to me and to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So it was never limited to Israel. It was always intended to eventually spread to the whole world. Israel was going to be the channel through which the gospel would, be, uh, would spread to the whole world. But here's something I want you to see. And let's turn back to Mark's... Well, let's we'll stay here because I, I want to pull some things out of Matthew still. Jesus said to her, O oh woman, great is your faith. Remember when Peter stepped out of the boat to come to Jesus? Remember when they were struggling on the Sea of Galilee all night long and because the storm was raging and here comes Jesus and the, I think it was the fourth watch of the night or third watch of the night he comes walking to them on the water and they thought he was a ghost and he was they were terrified you know and and he says don't be afraid it's me and peter said well if it's you lord let me come to you on the water and jesus said well come on and peter steps out of the boat and he begins to walk on the water but after a little while, he takes his eyes off the Lord. He looks at the waves and all of this, and he realizes, "I'm walking on water. <laughs> I can't do this," and he begins to sink. And Jesus, and he cries out, "Lord, help, save me!" And Jesus reaches out and pulls him up. And what did the Lord say to him? "Why did you fear, oh you of little faith?" Now you know what I personally believe. Peter had more faith than this woman did, because he had more input. He had more knowledge. I believe he had more faith than the other disciples because they stayed in the boat. At least he was willing to get out and try it. It wasn't that he she had more faith than Peter, it's that her faith which was based on so little and yet the little bit she had she used to its fullest and believed with all her heart. Whereas Peter should have known a lot he should have had a lot more faith than he had. He was with Christ every day for three and a half years. He saw miracle after miracle. He heard all the words that Jesus spoke. He should have been of, all, you know, of anybody, those disciples should have been the most, the greatest men of faith. So what Jesus is saying here is in proportion to the revelation that she had, her faith was great as compared to his. But I think that we can glean some things about great faith. I think that will help us in understanding what's involved in having great faith and I tell you without faith it's impossible to please God right it's faith that connects us to God it's faith that allows the power of God to flow from God into our lives and through our lives and the first thing I see here with regard to great faith is that great faith involves repentance she was a woman of Canaan a Syrophoenician woman it says in Mark's Gospel and as I said these folks were Gentiles they were pagans. They were into uh, the worship of, As- of uh, Astarte and other gods and goddesses that were over those regions, or at least the people believed to be over those, uh, that area. The Phoenician people were tremendous sailors. Uh, it was believed that the, the Phoenicians were the first ones to discover the New World. Uh, so, you know, these folks were sailors and they worshiped a lot of gods that were over the seas and all. Uh, or they believed to be. And she no doubt, as I said earlier, had gone to these pagan deities and tried to get them to help, but they obviously was a futile experience. Her daughter got no better and probably she got worse. And she was probably disillusioned and fed up and with all these pagan gods and goddesses that she had grown up worshiping. And she heard about Jesus who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. And it was going around healing people, casting out demons, and working miracles. And she rightly understood, look, if God is God, he's got to be powerful. And the gods that I worship don't seem to be very powerful. And this Jesus, who claims to be the Son of God, is demonstrating the power of God. He's raising the dead, healing the sick, causing the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and the deaf to hear, and so on. Uh, and she rightly understood him to be the Messiah based on what he did. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? He said, look, if you don't believe I'm Messiah because of the words I speak, then believe for the sake of the works, because I do the works of Messiah. Say, But Israel, having all this input, all this revelation, for the most part had rejected him. But the Gentiles, having so little revelation, seemed to have begun to gravitate towards him. In fact, the only two people in the Gospels that he said had great faith, both of them were Gentiles: the Roman centurion whose servant boy was sick, and he asked him to come to heal him. And Jesus, said, I'll come right now. And he said, No, 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 Lord, you misunderstand. I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I'm a man under authority, and I understand authority and all. And I say to this one, Go, and he goes; and to this one, Come, and he comes. I understand authority. I understand you are a man of authority. If you just speak the word, my servant shall be healed. And Jesus said, I have not seen faith like this, great faith like this, no, not even in Israel. And then of this woman, he claims that she had great faith. But she was a woman who had repented. She had turned from her dead idols. Remember what Paul said to the Thessalonians? He said in chapter 1, verse 10, he said, you know, it's all over Achaia and Macedonia, how you folks have turned from dead idols to serve the true and living God. And that's a definition of repentance. Repentance is turning from dead idols, dead works, dead activities to turn towards God. That's repentance. And true faith involves, obviously, repentance. In fact, they're hooked together. You can't have one without the other. You can't really believe in Christ without having turned your back on the old life. Not that we have broken free from it completely, but there's that desire, right, to... Have turned away from it to follow God now and she seems to have turned away from this pagan way of life to come to Jesus Christ and the words that she uses to refer to him by signify to me that she is not just using terms that she's picked up from her Jewish neighbors and all but these are terms that she has come to use of Christ because she really believes him to be Messiah son of David and she calls him Lord because I really believe in my heart she accepted him as her Lord So repentance, first of all. Secondly, she says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. Great faith has to be properly directed. Great faith has to be properly directed. We're living in a time when, for some strange reason, people talk about faith as if it's important in and of itself without talking about the object of faith as being important. I mean, people say it's not important what you believe, only that you believe. Now, that's ridiculous. Of course it's important what you believe. Some people say, well, I just believe that everything's going to work out okay in the end. Well, that's a faith based on nothing, you know? To take a parachute and jump out of an airplane is an act of faith. To jump out of an airplane and just on the way down say, I believe, I believe, I believe is an act of stupidity. And there's a lot of people that claim to have faith, but really it's just stupidity because it's not based on anything. You know, Sure, it's important what you believe. That's the whole idea. Faith is nothing in and of itself. It's always the object of faith that's important. See, always the object of faith that's important. I could believe in a lie with all my heart, and it won't do me any good at all. But see, you have to believe in the right thing. That's why when the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, increase our faith, he responded by saying, if you have the faith of a grain of mustard seed, you shall say to that mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and it will be done for you. And the whole idea, I believe, what he was communicating to them is, it isn't the size of your faith that's really important, although it is in a lot of ways. But he was was right at that point trying to show them that more than the size of your faith... It's the object of your faith that's important. Because God will oftentimes work miracles for people that have just a little faith. Because it isn't the faith really. It's the one that the faith is placed in. The Lord himself. And so she said, O Lord, directing her faith towards Jesus Christ, son of David, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. She comes to him in an act of faith but she notice she doesn't demand anything from him not only is her faith repentance and properly directed but it's also humble again today we're hearing people tell us that look you demand you know you you know this is these things are your right God has told you this is your right to be wealthy and healthy and so you kind of stand on that and you kind of demand your healing and That's ridiculous. That is so ridiculous. She didn't come demanding anything. She came in humility. And then it says, he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and urged him, saying, send her away, for she cries after us. And Mark tells us she kept begging him. See, what was she doing? She was what with her faith? Persistent, persistent. She had the kind of faith that was not going to be denied. Well, we can turn there, I guess. Luke chapter 11, where Jesus is teaching about prayer. And you know the Lord's Prayer. We've studied that before, verses 1 through 4. And then he goes on to kind of illustrate using a a parable. In verse 5 he says, Which of you shall have a friend, and go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves? for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him and he will answer from within and say do not trouble me the door is now shut my children are in bed with me I cannot rise and give to you I say to you though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend yet because of his persistence because he's a pest he will rise and give him as many as he needs now this is what's called teaching by contrast. Jesus Christ would often teach about the Father using a contrasting parable. Jesus is not saying that the Father is like this guy who's in bed at midnight, who doesn't really want to give you anything, but if you keep bugging him, you'll get what you want. He's He's saying, look, if a man who really doesn't want to get up and do anything for you because he's your friend, but yet because you're persistent, you force him to act How much more so will your heavenly Father who wants to do good things for you? If you're persistent, will he give to you what you ask? And then he goes on to say, so therefore ask, and in the Greek it says, keep on asking and you will receive and seek and keep on seeking and you will find and so on. Jesus was teaching us is to be persistent in our prayers because oftentimes God is not saying no. He's just saying not just yet, but keep on asking. Because the Bible says, for everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. And God's got a specific time for everything. That's why I love the song we sung tonight. You know, do not waver when it's tough. Stand there firm, wait and trust. With God, nothing is impossible. And it's a song that talks about not giving up when things look bad. Continue to hang on to your faith. Continue to pray. And Jesus Christ was allowing her to be persistent, possibly, to use her as an illustration or an example to the disciples, how that they needed not to give up very easily when things didn't go their way, but to keep on praying. Because many times the Lord is willing and wanting to answer, but the timing isn't just yet. Maybe he's trying to draw our faith out. So many times we ask for things and pray, and yet nothing happens. And we get discouraged and we give up. I wonder how many times we have given up just short of God giving us what He intended to give us from the very beginning. I think too often we quit too easily. And we need to hang in there and keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on praying. Because very possibly the Lord intended to give us that very thing all along, but He wants to draw out our faith, see? He's trying to draw it from us. So her faith was repentant, it was properly directed, it was humble, respectful. It was persistent as we just said it was also the kind of faith that was broken when she fell down at him his feet she cried out lord help me now that's interesting to me because i believe she was a believer and yet i believe she fell into a common trap that a lot of us fall into as true believers and that is she got caught up with a formula she had heard other jews crying out son of david that seemed to be the magic formula to get things from jesus call him son of David. Now, she was a Gentile. She had no frame of reference. She didn't know how to address him. So she no doubt listened to her Jewish neighbors and all that lined the streets and knew that others had cried out, oh, son of David, have mercy on me. And he Jesus would respond with a healing or whatever. And even though she truly believed in him as Messiah, I think that she felt that must be the magic formula, you know? And so she kind of fell into that trap. See? And she referred to him, "Oh, son of David. And I think that oftentimes we tend to fall into formula prayers or traps that way. In fact, in some circles, they actually teach certain formula prayers. That if you pray this prayer this way, somehow that's going to unlock the power of God and let it flow into your life. Well, I don't know if the church realizes this, I'm sure many don't, but that's just Christianized sorcery. Because sorcery has always been has always taught that certain words carry with them power and will unlock the spirit forces or the spirit power in the spirit realm and so in sorcery you have incantations that are used which are believed to unlock certain spiritual powers and let them flow into your life well the church has picked up on that and is basically teaching a christianized form of sorcery when they teach people to pray using formulas or certain words that are designed to release power. And you'll hear a lot of Christians, you know, using the phrase, in Jesus' name. I'm not saying that to pray in Jesus' name is wrong. I'm just saying that it's wrong, though, to think that that phrase is going to unlock some spiritual power. See? And so she might have gotten caught up on this trap. Oh, son of David, have mercy on me. Well, that was what everyone else said that got a healing. So that's what I need to say. But what happened? Nothing. It wasn't until she fell down at his feet, broken, dropped the formula, forget the stupid formula, and got right to the heart matter. Lord, help me. See? And I think that's also what Jesus was waiting for. I think Jesus wants us to put down the formulas, you know? Now, let's face it. How many of us grew up as Christians or when we became Christians, kind of went through a period where we thought the King James is a little more spiritual than regular, talking regularly, you know? And I've heard Christians who will pray in the King James, you know, in the King's English. Oh, thou magnificent and beneficent heavenly Father, thou who hast cast forth the stars into the heavens. I mean, and are going through this whole big deal as if this way of talking somehow is more spiritual and will somehow unlock the power of God in their lives. And I think God is saying, you know what? Get real, you know, be yourself. I mean, how many of us walk up to our husbands or our wives and we say, oh, magnificent uh, husband or... Uh, you know, what is the Lord? Is the Lord any different that he wants us to put on some kind of goofy uh, way of talking? He wants us to be natural. He wants us to cut through all that baloney and get to the heart of the pot. What do you want from me? Forget all the formulas, all the address. What do you want? He wants us to speak from our hearts out of brokenness many times when we come and pray. And that's what happened. She just fell. She just fell down and she said, Lord, help me. And that's what he wanted simplicity, sincerity, brokenness, and finally humility. He said, It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, True, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. You know what? She could have said, Well, if that's the way you feel, forget you. I came here looking for some help, and this is the way I get treated. She could have stormed off resentful that he would even think of using an illustration which cast her as the little puppies under the table. But she, in humility, said, Lord, I realize I'm outside the covenant of God's people. I realize that I don't deserve a place at the table with the children of the kingdom. And yet, Lord, don't even the little puppies get to eat some of the crumbs that fall from the children's table? I mean, that's all I'm asking for, Lord. It would be nothing but a crumb to, to give to me for you to heal my daughter, see? And so there was humility. And I think the two things the Lord loves more than anything else in his children is faith coupled with humility. I think those two things more than anything else will unlock the power of God in your life. It's not a formula though. So it's a matter of the heart. Faith and humility. And that's what this woman had. And I think that's some of the qualities of true or great faith. It's repentance it's properly directed, it's reverent or it's, uh, you know, it's, it's reverent in the way, it doesn't demand anything, it's persistent, um, and it's humble. So moving back to Mark now, verse 31 says, And again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Now remember earlier in Ma- uh, Mark 5, He had been to this area and this the area of Decapolis was an area east of the Jordan River it was Roman in fact it was like little Rome because uh, outside of Rome this was the the place where uh, a lot of Roman activities went on and all and it was called Decapolis because it meant ten uh, ten cities and uh, Jesus was there earlier in Mark's Gospel and he healed a man of Gadara there remember the one who was uh, full of demons in fact they called themselves legion because we are many in him and he cast them into the herd of swine and they when we talk about the devil of and then and, and all that but uh but the idea was that he had he had gone up and after he healed actually there was two guys one was predominant so mark only focuses on the one but the townspeople came and and begged him to leave remember so we can't deal with this kind of stuff here man you know uh, you know, I could. Have, uh, sadly, to say, I could imagine some churches doing that. Jesus walking in, healing a bunch of people, and they saying, "Look, this doesn't fit our theology. You're going to have to leave here." You know, but they kind of they actually sent him away. And remember how the demon possessed guy said, "Look, I'd like to follow you." And the Lord says, "No, you go back to your families, your family, your friends. You tell them what great things God has done for you." So apparently he did. And by this time now, Jesus comes. Later now in his ministry, and now the people are have heard about Christ. They've seen his power in this guy's life. And now they don't ask him to leave. They come. They, they, you know, they want to receive from him too. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears. And he spat and touched his tongue. And then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, "Epaphtha, that is, be opened. Which is an Aramaic word, "Epaphtha," which means be opened. And immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed. And he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one. And again, why? Because he had enough thrill seekers, okay? At this point in his ministry, he didn't want any more people coming just to receive a miracle or a healing he was trying to keep a a low profile uh it was already getting too difficult for him to move around because the people would throng him and he wanted again to no doubt get a little more time alone with his men but they listened to him as as well as we do at times the more he commanded them the more widely they proclaimed it and they were astonished beyond measure saying he has done all things well he makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Now Jesus healed many people and often he used a variety of different ways to actually impart the healing. Sometimes he would just speak the word and they would be healed. Sometimes he would lay hands on them and they would be healed. Sometimes he would spit on the ground and make a little mud pie and put it on their eyelid and they would receive their sight. This time he spit and touched the man's tongue with the, some of the spittle, and put his fingers in his ears, and he was healed that way. Jesus used a variety of methods when he healed. He was not limited to any formula, and I believe that was by design. I believe he did that purposely, because he he knew the propensity in man to reduce things, especially the power of God, to formulas, and he didn't want people to go around, you know, uh... reducing his miracles and his healings to simple formulas and methodologies because that would remove the sovereignty away from God. God is sovereign. God does what he wants to do. He heals some, he doesn't heal others, and he will do it in a variety of ways so that we understand that there is no formula, you know? There is no steps one through five that if we follow this, we're going to receive a healing. If Jesus had healed the same way every single time we would be prone to say, well, this is the way it has to be done. And then we would tend to put more trust in the formula than in the power of God or the sovereignty of God. And that's something that God, the Lord tried so very hard to keep us from falling into. Always wanting us to remember that he was sovereign. You know, and the sovereignty of God simply means, hey, God will do whatever he desires to do. He is not subject to us. He will not jump through our hoops, you know, that we constantly try to get them to jump through through our methodologies and formulas that we believe, hey, this is what it is, you know, and this is how it's got to be, and we see the churches fall into that trap all over the place. How many churches do you know that are charismatic, that believe if you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you have to speak in tongues. If you don't speak in tongues, you have, tongues, you have not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you ask them why they believe that, well they can go to Acts and show you places where that's how it happened. And they will tell you that every time somebody received the baptism with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, they spoke in tongues. That is not true. That is not true. Many times they did. A lot of times they did not. Uh, When Paul received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, something like scales fell from his eyes. Yet we don't say if scales don't fall from your eyes, you haven't received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes they prophesied and spoke in tongues. See? Other times there were different things that happened. We have to be careful. We don't begin to limit God. And that's a, a common trap that we all tend to fall into. We have to be careful. I mean, I know in my own life, there have been times when God has used me as I prayed over somebody, they've been healed of something. And, 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 and the tendency is, you know, the next time somebody comes up and wants to be prayed over to be healed of something, you're thinking back, well, how did I say it last time when I prayed for that person they were healed? And, and you don't even realize it, but you're kind of falling into that trap of formulas and the lord would did not want that he wanted our faith to be in him and faith means not that i believe that if i have enough faith i'm going to get whatever i want faith is i pray and ask god for something but if he says no i say not my will but thine be done that's true faith see and so this guy came to jesus and jesus used an an unorthodox method of healing him verse 34 then looking up to heaven he sighed and the idea is that I believe he sighed uh, out of a heart that was grieving over what sin had brought into the world. Remember in John's gospel, remember how that when he came to the tomb of Lazarus to heal him, it says that, that he wept. And the word there for wept is only used there in John 11. It was the, uh, the word, Greek word, cruo. Now, the other word for cry was klyo, and that word was also used earlier in that context when Jesus came to the tomb. He saw all the people weeping. Well, the Greek word was klyo, and that was signified a loud wailing. In those days, they believed that the more you verbally wailed, the more you showed your respect for the dead, see, and they would actually even hire professional mourners who would come in and would wail and wail and carry on at the top of their lungs and all that was designed to respect the dead and all of that and to show your you know respect and all and it was quite a scene all this crying and wailing was going on and Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus and says he just he, he says he wept and the Greek word is cruo, which means to bow your head and to just kind of burst into silent tears there was no display it was just Just the God of the universe standing there in the presence of death. Death that had come into the world as a result of sin. This was not the world he created. This was not what he wanted man to have to endure. Now he wasn't, some people said, well, look look how much he loved him. See, because they saw him crying. They thought he was crying over Lazarus. Jesus was not crying over Lazarus. He was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He was crying over the effects or the consequences that man had brought upon himself because of sin, death being primarily the one he had in mind. And then it says he groaned in his spirit, which was a very strong Greek term, which means he was enraged inside. See, kind of like it is here, only not as strong. He sighs here because he's broken over what sin has done. Look at this man, deaf and mute. God didn't want people to be deaf and blind and mute and lame and paralyzed and all these other things. This was, again, the result of sin. Well, in John's gospel, it's a little stronger. He was enraged in his spirit. Why? Because he was absolutely furious at the consequences of sin. You know, he just was so upset that the world he had originally created and intended man to live in had all been wiped away by man's rebellion. And now man was living with the pain of sin and death every day so he looked up to heaven inside and he said uh, epaphtha which means be open and immediately his ears were open and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly then he commanded them that they should tell no one but the more he commanded them the more widely they proclaimed it and they were astonished beyond measure saying he has done all things well we could paraphrase that and say he makes all things new or he makes all things good. Remember in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, after each day of creation, what did he end each day with by saying, it is good. It is good. Every single day of creation, it says it is good. Then he turned the whole deal over to man, and in no time at all, it all became bad. Man rebelled against God, sin entered into man's heart, into the world, and all that God created that was good now became bad. And so the fallacy is when people say, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, that's a fallacy because that implies, falsely implies there are good people for bad things to happen to. The Bible clearly says there is none good but God. And Paul said there is none good, not one. I mean, certainly there are some that, by other people's standards, do good. But anybody who has turned their back on their Creator is wicked. No matter what kind of humanitarian things they do after that. I mean, no matter how good a person is in helping his fellow man, if that person refuses to acknowledge God's claim on his life, refuses to bow the knee to God's Lordship, the one who created him, if that person willfully thumbs his nose and turns his back on God, they are wicked. And that's what man is, apart from Christ. He is living and rebellion against God. And all the things that happen to people on this planet are not because God is no is not a good God, which people say, well, I'm a good person, therefore all these bad things must be God. God must be the villain. No, that's not true at all. These things are happening to us because of our sin. We're living with the consequences of our sin. And what did Jesus do? He turned back, you might say, the consequences of sin in this man's life. Um, not that his handicap was a result of his sin, although sometimes it was in the scriptures. It just simply means that in the beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, they turned the world over to Satan, and Satan introduced into it physical handicaps and diseases and things like that, and they, they were passed along from generation to generation. This man happened to be born deaf and mute, which was the result of sin in the world. But Jesus Christ, who initially made all things good and who will someday again make all things good and wipe away every tear from our eyes and remove the curse from the earth, went around giving a little preview during his earthly ministry of what it was going to be like someday worldwide when he returned and set up his kingdom. So he was going around doing good, the Bible says. He went around doing good. You can interpret that, in a sense, reversing the curse in people's lives and making what was once bad good, giving us a little preview of what it's going to be someday when he returns to the earth and makes all things good again And removes the curse and we live with him in perfect peace and harmony and health no more death no more sorrow no more tears no more pain no more hunger and so on well I tell you we wait for that world don't we especially because it seems like it's getting worse and worse every day as we look around we can't help but say oh Lord Jesus come quickly Father we just thank you Lord that you are a God of love a God of mercy Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you went about doing good and really left us a pattern to follow. Even though we cannot heal at will as you could, yet we are to go around doing good, spreading your love, reaching out to those that are hurting, those that are lost, praying for those that are sick and infirmed. And hopefully, Lord, your sovereign will will be such to touch and heal them we want to be instruments Lord of your grace and your power we know Lord that you gave to your church the authority that you walked in and you know that we know that you want us to exercise that authority in such a way as we will honor and glorify you through our lives and through our ministries we want for people to see Lord that although we were once bad we are new creations now old things have passed away all things have become new And although we're not perfect, yet we have a new heart. and We desire to do what's right and to glorify you by our obedience to what you have said. And so, Lord, help us. Help us to realize that you love all people. You're not prejudiced toward anybody. You love this Gentile woman as much as you loved your own disciples. And Lord, help us to understand you're no respecter of persons, and we must never be either. We must love all people from all races, all walks of life. We must never show partiality or favoritism to anybody. None are excluded from the table of God's kingdom. None, anyone can be a child of the king if they but open their heart to you. Help us to present that message of hope to this world. We just love you, Lord. And as you went about doing good, we pray you would help us to do the same. We love you, Lord. We know a lot of people are in bondage to the enemy. And we know that you're the only one who can deliver them. We pray you might use us as your instruments to work that work of deliverance, Lord. Help us. We just love you now, Lord. We just thank you. And ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.